As the kids are being dismissed to go to Kids on Mission, let me invite you to take your Bibles now and open to Mark chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, my name is Thomas Gardner, and I have the great joy and privilege of serving as the teaching pastor here at Riverwood. Uh, We've been in a study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we're going to be really until uh, the first part of next year, with a few breaks here and there, one of which is coming up in the summer. Uh, We've been moving through verse by verse in Mark. Again, if you're visiting, that's sort of our pattern, is to move through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we've come this morning to the second half of Mark chapter 5. If you've got your outline, it'll be helpful there to take a look there and uh, just kind of as we set sort of the wider context. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning and I'm thankful for you visitors, but also thankful that some folks who have been away for a while are back with us. And so Ron and Betty, we're so grateful to see you this morning. Ron, so glad that the Lord has been good to you guys and uh, just thankful that he's allowed you to be with us this morning. Um, it, It is a privilege to be together as the church. The, the time, if you think back a year ago, we were all at our houses watching our phones or our TVs or our computers. And so uh, give thanks to the Lord that we can be together as his people. This morning, we're going to be talking about suffering. We're going to be thinking about intense, acute suffering. We're going to be thinking about prolonged, sustained suffering. But in order to get to the accounts that we're looking at this morning that address this topic, let's kind of back up a little bit and think about where we've been. Specifically, if you go back into the second part of Mark chapter 4, what Mark has been doing in this portion of his gospel is showing us some things about Jesus. Remember that Mark is very interested not so much in telling us very blatant things about Jesus. He's conveying Peter's account of the life of Jesus. He's showing us who Jesus is so that we would respond to those things in faith. That our response to what is true would be to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be and who Mark presents him to us to be. We've seen, really going back into the end of chapter 4, we've seen Jesus calm the raging of the sea. We've seen him control demonic forces. Now, as we get into this second portion of chapter 5, we're going to see him work miraculously in two healing miracles. He's going to accomplish two very dramatic healing miracles. And what those do, especially the second one, where he's going to raise someone from death, is that they lead us back to the question that the disciples on the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee asked among among themselves after he had stilled the storm. And they said, who is this then? That's the question that we must ask as we look into the text. Who is this that can do these things? And again, following what Mark would have us believe, we would say Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's our key point this morning. The healing miracles of Jesus, specifically the ones we're going to look at this morning, they demonstrate the personal nature of his ministry as he provides deliverance for those who experience both acute and prolonged suffering. The focus of these two accounts this morning, it's on the personal nature of Jesus' power. We've seen his sort of transcendent divine power in calming the storm, in overcoming evil forces, specifically the Gerasene demoniac. What we're going to see now is he's going to exercise that power also in a very personal way, specifically on on behalf of those who are suffering. 
Friends, we live in a fallen world, and human suffering is one of the evidences of that reality, that there is something wrong with the world, that there is something wrong with us. Suffering points us towards that truth. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus meets his people in suffering, and because he's the Son of God, he can overcome that suffering. Ultimately, the the most uh, specific and greatest example of suffering, which is death. Jesus can come and give eternal life. He can raise the dead to life because of who he truly is. We're going to see these things together this morning. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll read from Mark chapter 5 and look into the text. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, what a joy it's been this morning to think about uh, really the full scope of life seeing these children before us and their parents uh, desiring to dedicate them to you for your glory, to see you work in their lives, then seeing those who have been away uh, for a period of time because they've been going through a season of difficulty and suffering, then to be joined back with us. Lord, we see the full scope of life. We give you thanks that as we look into the world, Lord, we do not exclusively see suffering. We see your truth. We see your goodness. We see your beauty that you've woven into the fabric of creation. But Father, we do recognize in this world that there are troubles. We see suffering. We ourselves experience suffering. And so this morning, Lord, we have come as your people. You have called your people together to worship you. Father, your word now is given to instruct and sustain us in the midst of suffering and difficulty. And so, Father, I just pray this morning that your spirit would use your word for those purposes in our lives, especially as we think about this topic, which is so personal for all of us. Father, thank you that what we see in your word is that you have sent your son Jesus to personally minister your presence and your grace to us. So this morning, Lord, as we see Jesus, would you draw our hearts to love him and to worship him? Father, if there are any here who do not know him, would you draw them by your spirit to place their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would exhibit the trust in Jesus that we see in these people in this account this morning? So Father, this is your church. Uh, This is your time. May your spirit be free to move and work in us using your word in our lives for your glory. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, and I'll read through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, 
came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. When he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began, to, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our account this morning follows one of Mark's patterns. If you've got your outline, you can look there and be reminded We've gone through, and one of the things we, we noted in this study is that Mark has a certain sort of te- technique that he does. Um, the big word for it is intercalation. We call it sandwiching. And so what we have here is another example of Mark's sandwiching technique, where he'll begin an account and then sandwich something else in the middle of it and then return back to the initial account. Now, what's interesting here is that this seems like it just worked out this way that this was actually the series or sequence of events. Jesus encounters this man, Jairus. He begins to head towards his house to deal with the situation with his daughter. He encounters the woman. You have that situation. And then he gets to the home. But I still want you to see and recognize this. And what we see within these techniques, uh, here you see a quote there that I've given you from James Edwards. He says, Mark sandwiches one passage into the middle of another with an intentional and discernible theological purpose in order to emphasize the major motifs of the gospel. And the middle story nearly always provides the key to the theological purpose of the sandwich. If you recall this, we've seen this already with Jesus' family. His mother and brothers show up. They think he's out of his mind. Then you have the situation where he's rejected by the scribes from Jerusalem. And then his mother and brothers are looking for him again, and he looks around and says, who are my mother and brothers? And the emphasis there is in the middle on the rejection. It's that there are people who do not believe, from Jesus' own family, ultimately to those who really set themselves out in opposition to him as his enemies. This morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus comes and addresses suffering, and he does so personally in order to remove the stigma and reality of defilement. And that the ultimate example of that climaxes in him removing the defilement of death itself. Let's think about this account, though, and let's, let's continue thinking about the geography of where we are. Jesus, we saw last week, had been in a region called the Decapolis. They went across the Sea of Galilee. This is the first part of Jesus' ministry. It's heavily involved in the northern portion of what is now modern-day Israel. At the time, it was the Roman province of Judea. And he's been spending a lot of time, and in Mark's account, Mark really focuses in on this town of Capernaum, the small fishing village on the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. We saw last week, though, that Jesus 
gets in the boat and they go across, and really the last two weeks, because the storm occurs on the, during the crossing of the Sea of Galilee. Then they arrive at the other side where Jesus encounters the man possessed by the legion of demons. And so we uh, dealt with that account last week. What our account begins with this week is talking about them going back across the sea, in all likelihood back to Capernaum. It doesn't say specifically that they returned to Capernaum in Mark's account, but given that he's come from there, he is in all, likely retur- in all likelihood returning to Capernaum. And so it's there upon returning that another crowd gathers around him. It's probably what happens is when he arrives again, the crowds begin to gather and word once again begins to spread in Capernaum that Jesus is present. And he's done many, many miracles there. And so as word spreads, more and more people come. And it seems likely that these two individuals that are highlighted within this account, Jairus and this woman, probably come to Jesus because they've heard that he's back. He's come back and returned to Capernaum. So let's begin with the first account. What we see here is that this synagogue ruler, he's experiencing a time of acute suffering. It's it's an immediate thing. His daughter is at the point of death. Now we don't know, maybe she had been sick for a long time, but it doesn't seem that way. Seems as though maybe this illness has come upon her quickly and her condition has very, very quickly deteriorated to the point that she is nearly on, or she is, um, she's close to death. And so this man comes immediately. Now, let's talk a little bit about this man. It mentions that he's connected to the synagogue. He's a synagogue ruler. He's probably one of the elders of the synagogue. There were older men who served in leadership positions within the synagogues. They helped adjudicate things. They taught. They did various things associated with the synagogue. This means that he was probably well-known. This is actually Capernaum. These are the ruins of modern-day Capernaum, if you travel there. This is the synagogue. Now, these walls, you can see they're a different color stone. You see that's white, and that's sort of a black stone. Uh, The stone that's natural to this area is called basalt, and it's this dark stone. This synagogue that you see here, the ruins there, those were stones taken from another region, which is why they're white. But if you look along the bottom you'll see that this really is the foundation. If you go there, the foundation that you can go put your hands on is the foundation of the actual synagogue where this man, Jairus, served as one of the elders. But this gives you an idea roughly of the size. Okay, This is, again, looking into sort of the main gathering area of this synagogue to get an idea of its size. This is where Jairus served. Now, a couple of observations that we can pull out from this. The first is that he seems to have been an important man within the community because both his name and title are given within the account. Now, if you'll notice that sometimes when you're reading the Gospels, it'll name someone. Sometimes it'll just say a leper or a woman or a man. Other times it'll give their name, their title, their position. The Bible scholar Richard Bauckham has done a lot of work on this, and he makes the point that in all likelihood, the reason for this was because these people were well-known. This was someone who would be well-known within this community. Also, it's possible that they were well-known in the early Christian communities. So within the first couple of decades of all these events happening, if you went back to Capernaum, you could find Jairus and ask him about this. When Mark writes this, he's fully expecting that if you live within the region, you can go into this area and ask for Jairus and ask him about this situation. It's why he's named specifically. He seems to be well-known. 
So he's, he's probably um, a wealthy businessman. If he's well-known and he has this position in the synagogue, there's probably a reason for that. Either he's some sort of religious scholar, he has some training and background, or perhaps he, he owns a business. He's got a position of leadership within the community, and therefore he has a position of leadership within the synagogue. The thing I want you to notice, though, and, just, and think about with him is that this is a prominent man within the community. He's well-known. Perhaps, and certainly since he's um, one of the synagogue elders, he's well thought of within the community. But what we see of him is not acting in accordance with his position in some sort of dignified, stately, religious manner. He comes and he throws himself down before Jesus. He says, falling at his feet, or he fell at his feet. He implored him earnestly. What you see in his actions, his actions and words demonstrate, this is kind of your second observation there, both the desperation of the situation and his trust in Jesus. And don't miss as well, Mark wants you to be thinking about, have you seen anybody else show up and fall down at Jesus' feet recently? Last week, remember, when Jesus gets off the boat and the man possessed by the legion of demons, he comes and it's the same imagery. He falls down before Jesus. He falls at his feet. The difference is that that was compelled by who Jesus was as the holy God. This is done out of desperation and hope and trust that Jesus really is who he says he is. And, and, what more, and, and think about this. If he's one of the elders of the synagogue, Jesus has done several miracles within the synagogue. Jesus has cast a demon out of a man. Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. Jesus has been doing things that Jairus would have seen. He would have seen. And remember, also, because he's a a religious leader, there were scribes who had come from Jerusalem who had then been speaking ill of Jesus, accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so Jairus has all these things moving in his mind and heart about Jesus, and yet when it comes to the acute suffering in his life, dealing with the potential loss of his daughter, the other Gospels fill in that this is his only child, his only daughter, whom he loves dearly. He comes to Jesus. And he throws himself down at Jesus' feet, recognizing that if anyone can help, Jesus can. Here's the key point then. In contrast to the other religious leaders, Jairus believed that Jesus had come from God and could therefore bring healing to his daughter. He, he, whatever he's heard the other scribes say, based on what he's seen, he, he, he makes the choice to trust that Jesus really is from God, and therefore Jesus really could act powerfully in the situation with his daughter. So we get this account. Jesus, it says, goes with him. And on the way then, you get this in verse 24, he went with him, and a great crowd followed him. And, and the crowd is all about him. It adds that imagery that it thronged about him. There's, you can just imagine a large crowd when I think of crowds, I think of being a little kid at the state fair. I mean, the fair isn't really, the last couple times I've gone, it's not really as crowded, but that's usually because I don't want to go when it's crowded. I go and get some, like, I get like a fried donut hamburger or something for lunchtime, and then go take a nap afterwards. But I remember being a little kid, and for some reason, I'm, that image is marked in my mind of the fair, the, the state fair on the fairgrounds, and just being so close to people, and it's also you know, sometimes it can be nice at the fair, but a lot of times it's like 95 degrees and 85% humidity. And I just remember like it smelled bad, and, but then you smell fried food and it's good. But there's just people everywhere. Very, very overwhelming, especially when you're a kid. So when I think of Jesus moving through the streets of this little town, I remember like go back and like just see some of this. Oops, I went too far. 
Just think about these streets. I mean, look how close these structures are together. There is a little causeway in the middle. It's not very wide. You can imagine most of the town coming in. And so they're bumping into Jesus all along the way. That's an important detail that Mark adds, okay, that they're bumping into each other. And what he's going to do is he's going to encounter a woman. And what we see about this woman is that this woman is experiencing a season of prolonged suffering because of chronic bleeding. Jairus seems to be in this moment of very acute suffering. His daughter has come to the point of death. This woman, in the description of her, it's a season of prolonged suffering. It's a chronic illness that she's been dealing with. Specifically, it says she's been dealing with it for 12 years. She has a discharge of blood, and you need to understand this in light of Old Testament background. That would be bad enough of just a medical situation, but you have to remember that things like discharges in Israel, in accordance with their law, rendered a person ritually impure. You can go and look in Leviticus and read about this in Leviticus chapter 15. This woman would therefore have lived a very isolated life, specifically isolated from the religious community. She would have been unable to attend the synagogue. She would have been unable to go to Jerusalem for religious festivals. She lived in a state of perpetual defilement. It's very possible this condition as well would have prevented marriage. Or if she had been married before she had this condition, it would have required perpetual celibacy, which in that culture was a legitimate reason for a man to divorce a woman. So you can see how this long-term chronic issue of blood would have been something that would have had significant ramifications for her life. It had physical, emotional, relational consequences. It was not just a physical thing that she was dealing with. It had wider implications for her life. You can imagine then that because of the, all of what this meant, her life probably felt consumed by suffering. It affects how she feels physically. It affects how she relates to others. It affects her place and how people view her within the community. And she had sought to address it. It mentions that. It mentions that she had suffered under many physicians. It's interesting. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which I've commended to you many times, um, he talks about how when you look into the, the writings in the Talmud, there were all sorts of uh, ways medically that they would try to address conditions like this. So there were certain sort of little astringent type cures that you could try to use to address it. But then you also had these very, very strange sort of mythical um, superstitious cures. And he mentions two of them. One of them was to burn ostrich eggs and to put the ashes in a cloth and to carry it around in this cloth during the summer. And so that was one of the ways that was supposed to alleviate a situation like this. Another one was you were to actually go and pick through the dung of a female donkey trying to find barley grains that you would also carry around with you. And that these things were in some way supposed to alleviate this situation. So, I mean, just imagine the desperation of a person. She's dealt so much with this that she's willing to dig through the dung of an animal in order to deal with the horrors of the situation. Imagine the experience of the prolonged suffering that leads a person to do those things. You can imagine as well that this would have led to her being impoverished. If she's having to pay people to teach her about these remedies or to provide antiseptics or whatever it may be, she's become impoverished. So her suffering has dramatically affected the experience of the living of her life. 
A couple of observations here. The woman had heard reports about Jesus and clearly believed that he possessed the power of God. Now notice there are, very, there are a lot of similarities between the accounts of Jairus and the woman, but there's also some differences. Jairus has heard certainly about Jesus, but he's seen Jesus do things in all likelihood. We, we are very specifically told here that she has heard about Jesus. Okay, She's heard about what's happened, and she, she believes that he has the power of God. Some, there's a power to him that is divine that can actually remedy her situation. And you even get, it's so interesting to see, that you get the insight into her thinking. And we'll talk about why, how we get this account in, in a few minutes. But it's interesting that you get this. She's really thought this through. In light of what she's heard about Jesus and the powerful works that he's done, she believes that he can heal her as well. He, she's heard that he's healed these other people with different conditions, She's probably heard about the healing of the, the man with leprosy. That's a defiling thing that, in a similar way to her, would have dramatically affected that man's position within the community. And so maybe she thinks, he can do the same thing for me. The second observation there is that in her reasoning, you see something. Because of her state of impurity, she seems to have believed that she was unworthy of either directly addressing or touching Jesus. Notice the contrast between Jairus, the well-respected man within the community. What does he do? He comes to Jesus. Now, he's, he falls down before him in reverence and addresses him, imploring him earnestly, but he doesn't feel like he can't go and speak directly to Jesus. This woman does not feel like she can go and speak to Jesus. Now, there could be some cultural aspect to that, but we see other situations where women come and do speak to Jesus and address things and ask things of him. She doesn't feel like she can do that. She doesn't even feel like she can touch him. Why? Because she knows she's defiled. She knows the state in which she lives. She understands that this is a holy man of God who is sent from God. And if she can't go into the synagogue and she can't go to the temple and can't go to Jerusalem, then she certainly can't be too involved with this holy man from God. You think about it as well. She's perhaps worried that it might even be dangerous for her to touch him. When you think about situations in the Old Testament where someone who is impure touches something that was set apart as holy, doesn't go very well for them. So she could have legitimate fear there. So what is she determined to do? She's just going to touch his garment. If she can just get near enough to him in the crowd and just touch his garment, then maybe that will suffice. What we see then is that she does this, and she is immediately healed. Her body is, says that her body, she sensed in her body that she was healed of the disease. She's immediately healed. It's an amazing thing. Something to think about, though, not everyone who touches Jesus is healed. It's important to note, Jesus isn't just walking through the crowd and everybody's like, if you had a hangnail, it's fixed, or if you had a toothache, it's fixed, just by bumping into Jesus. This is a very specific thing, and what we, the, the way that we know this is because Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, uh, everybody? Everybody touched you. What do you mean, who touched you? Which I, I have to think that that's Peter. Remember, Mark is giving us Peter's account, and that's such a very, Peter, it would just be a very Peter thing to say, to just look around and be like, there's everybody here that's bumping into you. But something specific happens when this woman touches him. All right, so let's, a couple of observations, actually four observations here with this. First, the description of these events, <coughs> excuse me, it emphasizes that Jesus himself is the source of the healing power that she experiences. 
Jesus isn't wearing a magic cloak. It's not Jesus' garment that has some kind of power that heals her. It's Jesus himself who is the source of the power. That's why it says he sensed that power went out from him. He is the source of this woman's healing. There's nothing special about the garment itself, and it's important that we see that because people have a tendency to fetishize objects. Um, One of the things that is deeply troubling when you go to Israel and you go to a lot of these holy sites as you see people who maybe are very earnest in their love for Christ and their devotion towards him, but they're doing things like rubbing candles on shrines and on various things, uh, seeking to get some sort of connection to the divine through an object. It's very interesting to see that Jesus does not let her do this. Because imagine if she just touches his garment and she's healed and she's able to slip away, she could have all sorts of misconceptions about things. Her desire really is that this is going to be a very impersonal interaction. She just wants, she believes that he can heal her, that he has the power to heal her. She wants to achieve that healing and then to just kind of move on with her life. Point two here though is that Jesus personalizes the encounter. He won't let the encounter stay impersonal. He calls out, who did this? Who touched me? He tries, he, he wants to make this a personal thing. Again, sh- if he doesn't do this, it could justify maybe some super, superstition that she has. But, but it's so important that faith must be personalized. See that here. Faith is not just some abstract thing. Well, you're supposed to have faith. No, scripturally, the focus of faith is personal. It is in a person. It is in God. It is in his son, Jesus. And so Jesus turns to her. He addresses the crowd, and he does so not because he doesn't know, but he gives her this opportunity then to respond. It's this wonderful opportunity that other people at times in the Gospels don't take. He calls out, and he gives her a chance to personally interact with him. Just think about it. Remember in her mindset, she is not, She's defiled. She can't personally interact with this holy man. And yet Jesus speaks and gives her a chance to speak to him. Her response, it evidences both reverence and fear. What does she do? (laughs) She came in fear and trembling, and what does she do? She falls down before him. See these patterns. When you're reading your Bible, if you see things like that recur, ask why the author is pointing this out. Yes, it's because those things happened, but why is he highlighting that for you? He's showing a connection between the story of Jairus and the story of this woman. Like Jairus, she falls down before Jesus. There's reverence there, but it does mention that she's trembling. She's legitimately afraid. And when you think about this, again, going back to the Old Testament, even though she's not been able to be in synagogue and things like that, if she understands her own defilement, she's probably from when she was a little girl, heard stories about what happened when people, the guy tried to catch the Ark of the Covenant as it was falling over, and he died. She's terrified. She's potentially worried that judgment is going to be brought upon her, an unclean person for touching this man who is characterized by holiness and the power of God. And yet, what does it say she does? I love this. It says that she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. All, how do we know about all that stuff that was going on in her mind and what she was thinking? Because she says it right there to Jesus and the apostles are around there. Specifically, probably, Peter is there and he hears it. And he conveys this account to Mark. or he, Mark hears him preaching and, and talking about this account. 
So we get this window into what this woman is thinking through those who hear her share this with the Lord. She's very open before him. She doesn't hide. She, she admits what's happened. And Jesus' response to her is so kind. This is the Lord's response, the, uh, point four there. The Lord's response to her, it directly commended her faith and it indirectly assured her of her cleansing. He commended her faith and he indirectly assured her of her cleansing. See, what she had heard was true. And so Jesus commends her faith. She has acted in accordance with what she has heard to be true of Jesus. She heard and she believed that that was true about him. And she acted then in light of that. Her faith and trust in him led him to heal her. Again, it's not her faith that is the source of her healing. It's Jesus that's the source. But it's by faith that she accesses the healing that he offers. She trusts him to come to him. And he is the one who heals her. And what's amazing here is that he lays no further requirement upon her. This is what's connected to this idea of her cleansing. Remember, this is a defiled woman. It's her, t- her situation is like textbook violation of what you see in Leviticus 15. And yet Jesus doesn't lay any other burden upon her. He simply says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He doesn't say anything to her about rituals or any things that she needs to do. And so what's interesting there is there's this implication that she's been cleansed from defilement. It's this thing that he implies there. And that's really the key point that we need to see, I think. The Lord did not send her, or that the Lord did not send her to the temple to complete her cleansing, demonstrated that he possessed the authority to declare the impure to be pure and the holiness to make it so. Recall that when he had healed the man of leprosy, he said, go, show the priest, show yourself to the priest in accordance with what Moses has said. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that in that moment, but he's sending this man to be a testimony to the priest in Jerusalem. What's happened since then, though, is that religious leaders have come from Jerusalem and have rejected Jesus as Messiah. They've declared that he's from Satan and that his power is satanic in opposition to God rather than carrying out the power and purposes of God. So what we see here is because she's encountered Jesus, she doesn't need to go to a priest to be declared, declared clean. She doesn't need to go to a representative of God to receive God's cleansing because she's standing in the presence of God incarnate who has declared her clean. She also doesn't need to go into the holy presence of God at the temple because the holy presence of God is personally before her in the form of Jesus And so what this is, in many ways, it really is, it's an indictment of the religious system in Israel at this point. Jesus has come in fulfillment of Israel's religious system. He is bringing true and complete cleansing. He is bringing true holiness, not behind a veil, but into the lives of those who come to him by faith. So you get this dramatic healing of this woman that's very public, and then the account transitions back going to speak of Jairus' daughter. So it says then that as they're still talking, you get this account in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And I, th- I think there's something there for us to think about. Jairus' situation talks or shows us something about acute suffering. The woman's situation shows us something about prolonged suffering. The death of the little girl shows us that suffering is ultimately a reminder of our own mortality. 
Suffering is such a huge part of reminding ourselves that no matter how good things can be in this life, life is coming to an end. That our life is on a trajectory. And while all the older people in this church would, could speak to you of God's goodness as they age, they would also tell you about things that hurt more than they used to. And things that you can't do as well as you used to be able to do them. And on some level, those may seem like minor suffering, but they are suffering nonetheless. Suffering is evidence of our own mortality, and the death of this little girl shows us where suffering ends. Whether it's acute suffering, whether it's prolonged suffering, the ultimate suffering is death, and that is where we are all headed. And so see that kind of, that trajectory within this account. So Jesus, this is what we see they come and they say to him, they say to Jairus, just leave, just leave the teacher alone. Your daughter's already dead. Can you imagine him hearing that? Can you imagine after he's come into Jesus' presence with the desperate hope that maybe his daughter could be saved? And then he hears this? It's very interesting that if you look at Jairus in that first account and Jairus in the second account, in the first account, he's very active. You see that he, he approaches Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He's speaking. He falls down at his feet. In the second part of this account, he's very, very passive. He's just sort of there. And, and I just, I can just think about, I can just imagine hearing news like that and just the stunned disbelief of it. How, how, could, this, how could this be? How can you even process something like that? And so I, I see in his passivity just the emotional numbness and brokenness of having to process news like that. And yet Jesus looks at him, Jesus, Jesus speaks to him, and he says, do not fear, only believe. Jesus' words to Jairus sought to assure him in the midst of his emotional numbness. I'm imagining at this point Jairus has nothing to add to the situation. He, he probably just feels captive to the whole situation. He's just living it and seeing it almost third person. And yet Jesus directly addresses him in the midst of his sort of surreal devastation. Jesus speaks to him and says, believe. And think about what's implied within that. Why has Jairus come to him? Because he's seen Jesus work. He's seen the power of Jesus to do things that cannot be explained. He's seen the power of God at work in Jesus at prior times in his own life. And so in the midst of this surreal devastation where he has nothing, the only thing he has is to be able to look back at the things that he seen to be true about Jesus. And, and in that then, he can believe, he can trust in the midst of what he's facing. They then arrive, and the mourners, Jesus, it, it, the account highlights that the, you see what's going on. Uh, verse 39, they entered and he said to them, you hear the people, they're wailing. Um, you can tell then that there was probably, there was an expectation that she was going to die. Because it seems like in these cultures, they hire mourners. I mean, as weird as that is for us, there are those who would wail, part, partly probably because of the emotional devastation of something like this. They hire those to audibly mourn for them. And others in the community have come in, in addressing this situation and yet Jesus looks at them and he speaks and he says something that's sort of cryptic and strange. He says, Jesus' words to the mourners, they seem to have a double meaning that serves almost the same purpose as his parables. Because he says to them, the child is not dead but sleeping. It's sort of a strange 
phrase or a strange thing to say in this situation. It's interesting, though. His words convey his confidence. They convey his confidence in his ability to make death as if it was just sleep, as if it was just a time where there's a a lack of consciousness and then a return to consciousness. It conveys his own confidence within who he is and his own power. And so you see that. But if you think about it as well, it also in some sense is going to obscure the miracle. Because there's all these people that think she's dead. This man shows up and says she's not dead, she's merely sleeping. And then he only takes a few people with him. And then, as we're going to see, the little girl's going to come out in a period of time. So if if you don't know who Jesus is, if you're not a part of this group that's with him... What do you think? Well, maybe she, maybe she wasn't really dead. Maybe it in some ways obscures the miracle. And so his words are intentional and they function like the parables in that he's going to say something that went for those who are insiders who believe in him, they're going to get more revelation and information and understand it. But for those who are outside, who are suspicious, who don't necessarily believe, it's going to remain a mystery. It's going to remain clouded to them. So we then see he comes in. He takes the, the child's father and mother, and then he also takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They come with him into this room, and it says that he takes her by the hand. Love this observation. Both the personal touch and powerful word of Jesus are highlighted. He takes her by the hand, and he speaks to her. Now, this is a resurrection of a child, and if you think about your Bible, this is not the first biblical resurrection of a child. If you think back into 1 Kings, there's the account of Elijah raising the widow's son. But there's a very strong distinction here between Jesus and Elijah. Elijah calls out to the Lord. Elijah lays upon the woman's son three times. It's this big process Jesus comes and takes this little girl by the hand and he speaks to her and just says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And again, you see both his personal touch, but you also see the power of his word. You see the transcendent divine power of God and the personal love and humanity of Jesus in touching this little girl, in bringing healing to her. It's interesting that Mark decides to translate the Aramaic there. He probably does that because this, he knows his account is going to be read at many times and in many places. And it might be that people think that this is some sort of incantation that you can say over the dead and it will raise the dead. So Mark gives us this translation of the Aramaic, Aramaic phrase that Jesus specifically speaks. What we see here, though, is that his word gives her new life. His word gives this girl new life. Second thing we see in this is that his charges to those who witness the miracle, they serve to perpetuate the mystery of his true identity as well as to assure them that the little girl had truly been raised from death. There are two charges that he gives right at the very end. He strictly charged them that no one should know this. Keep this quiet. He's already told everyone that she's only sleeping. She's not really dead. He then, again, in telling everyone not to, not to go and speak about this, again, it functions like the parables. It's hidden from the outsiders. The mother and father and Peter, James, and John, they see what happens to this little girl. 
they see how he raises this little girl from death. They have insight. And so when Jesus goes back to his apostles, to his disciples, what's going to happen? He's going to explain things more, or certainly they're going to explain to each other. This is not going to be something, I wouldn't think that Peter, James, and John would have hidden this from the other apostles. The imagery here, though, is not to have this be proclaimed widely. And we often wonder, why is that? Why doesn't he want that? It's because there's only one resurrection, or there's a primary resurrection that's to be the focus of proclaiming good news. And it's not the resurrection of this little girl, because she's going to die again. And it's not the resurrection of Lazarus, because he's going to die again. It has to be re- Jesus' resurrection. And so with miracles like this, it makes complete sense that he would keep this a hushed thing. The other thing that, that he does, though, and I love, you have to love the beautiful humanity of the Gospels and the beautiful humanity of Jesus. He tells them to give her something to eat. Give her some food. It's a simple little thing, but it's something that personalizes and and humanizes this account. And also as well, it would assure everybody that saw her be raised that she's not a ghost or an apparition, which they very much believed in. So the fact that she takes food and eats it in their presence, it's this assurance that this really is someone who is dead and who has now been made alive. Here's the key point. (coughs) Excuse me. The raising of the little girl showed that the Son of God had authority and power over death itself. Now think about what Mark has been showing us these last few weeks in in these accounts. Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has authority over evil spirits. Jesus has authority over disease. Jesus has authority over death. Who is Mark showing us that Jesus is? Jesus is God. Only God alone possesses this level of authority. And so Mark is showing us this over and over again through these accounts. All right, let's consider what Mark wants his audience to think about in light of what we've seen this morning. First is this. Mark wants his audience to understand that the mercy of Messiah is for all people. For all are in need and all must place their faith in him. He's showing us Jesus showing mercy to two very different kinds of people from very different levels of society. Again, Jairus is named. He's prominent. He's well-known. He's a man of wealth and reputation. He's thought well of. This woman is a defiled, obscure person. She's impoverished, and she's of no reputation. Jesus, though, heals both of them because they're both in need. And I think this is so important that we see, especially in today's world, where there is a tendency to look at people and judge them primarily based on their situation in life. And in, in, in some sense, we've moved as a society and a culture to a point of recognizing those who are the least of these in our society and who've experienced oppression and things like that. It's a good thing that we recognize those people. We seek to address issues associated with their level and station in society. But there is this sort of move within wider culture to look at people and see them because they're of a particular place or station or privilege and to look down on them specifically because of those things. What we see here in Scripture is two people from two very different levels of society. And what do these accounts show us? That they are both suffering, that they are both ultimately in need of Jesus. And that they don't just need faith generally, they need a personal encounter with Jesus himself, who shows grace and mercy to all, regardless of who they are. He's not a respecter of persons, but all are in need of him. And I love how he 
again, he personalizes the way he speaks to them. He speaks to the woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. She's heard and believed. He speaks to Jairus and says, do not fear, only believe. He's exhorted to recall what he's seen and trust in Jesus. Mark wants all, from the least to the greatest, to see their need for Jesus and to believe in him and to trust him. Second thing Mark wants his audience to see, he wants them to see that the Son of God is not defiled by our sin, but instead overcomes it by his own holiness. You get the account of a defiled woman touching him. She's absolutely defiled because of her disease, and yet she did not spread that defilement to Jesus. Rather, his holiness made her clean. She didn't defile him. He cleansed her. Likewise, the little girl, she's a, it's a dead body. You were To encounter and touch a corpse made you ritually impure and unclean. Jesus could have, in order to preserve Jewish law and customs, he could have just spoken and raised her. But he goes and he touches her. He reached out and touched her. He, she doesn't defile him. Her body doesn't defile him. Him touching her injects new life into her dead body. He gives her life. Friends, although sin, this is a big thing that Mark wants us to recognize, although sin defiles us, We are sinners. We sin against God. Our sin defiles us. There is nothing about us that prevents the holy God of all creation from cleansing us through the blood of his son. That is the good news of the gospel. We are seeing that beginning to be pictured in these accounts. And what Jesus is going to do on the cross is going to make this available to all people, not just those that he encounters personally during his life and ministry. Just a couple of concluding thoughts here. The Lord Jesus meets us in our acute suffering, and he will deliver us. We need to hear that because we need to think about, and we need to think rightly about these accounts. These accounts are not an assurance to us that if we just believe in Jesus, that he's going to take away all our pain and suffering. These accounts are so misused by those who preach the prosperity gospel. What we need to recognize is that both of these women, oh, I didn't mention this, the woman who had suffered, she had been suffering for the same amount of time the little girl had been alive. The little girl was 12 years old. The woman had been suffering for 12 years. There's this period of time that's kind of lined up together, one that's prolonged suffering, one that culminates in acute suffering, and Jesus comes and meets both of them where they are. This is not, though, some encouragement that we just believe that Jesus will take away all our suffering. The woman who's healed by him, she suffers again in life. She's going to suffer other diseases. And she's ultimately going to suffer death. The little girl, as she's raised to new life, she's going to suffer various ailments throughout her life. And ultimately, she's going to die a second time. This account is instead supposed to show us that Jesus meets us in our suffering and that he will deliver us. Not just temporarily, although he can. He can, and at times he does deliver us from our acute suffering. But he will deliver us fully and completely. Be assured in your acute suffering that God is with you. Look at Paul, Romans 8, 35 there and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Look at these acute suffering, these examples of acute suffering. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? 
know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul also recognized, Paul writes that in Romans, but then at the very end of his life, in 2 Timothy, when he's writing at the end of his life, he says these words in 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul recognized that the Lord absolutely delivered him from acute suffering at times, but the ultimate way he was going to do that was by bringing him into his presence. Friend, the Lord will not leave you or forsake you in your acute suffering. Instead, he will deliver you ultimately either, he he may deliver you from that season of suffering, but he will ultimately deliver you either through death or through his return for you. And if we think about the example of Jairus, in our acute suffering, maybe like Jairus, we need to recall God's faithfulness and goodness to us in the past. And the way Jairus needed to not fear but believe by recalling what, he, what was true, what he had seen to be true about Jesus. In our acute suffering, there's perhaps great value in working back and thinking about times in our lives where God was clearly at work, where he was good to us, where he was with us, reminding ourselves that he has not left us or forsaken us, even in this period of suffering. Secondly, the Lord Jesus meets us in our prolonged suffering, and he will sustain us in it. Maybe your suffering is not acute, although we all have seasons of acute suffering. Maybe you are in a season of prolonged suffering. And like this woman, you're experiencing the physical and emotional and relational consequences of suffering. Be assured that Jesus is with you in your prolonged suffering. Hear Paul's words here, speaking about his own chronic ailment that he had to deal with in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, three times... I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's word was that God's grace was sufficient in the midst of his prolonged suffering. How? Because Jesus, his his Savior, had suffered And Jesus, who suffered faithfully and who was sustained by God's grace by the indwelling Spirit, has sent the Spirit to indwell us as believers so that Jesus' life can be manifested in us, so that we can suffer the way Jesus did, entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Jesus suffered both acutely and in a prolonged way. His entire incarnation, you could say, in some way, is prolonged suffering, mixed with seasons of acute suffering that culminate on the cross. But he goes to the cross ultimately in my place and in your place so that we might not suffer the consequences of our sin eternally. Jesus is then raised from the dead so that we might know for certain that we will not suffer forever. That what we're experiencing now can be considered as light and momentary in light of the eternal weight of glory that is ahead for us. There's this great line in the movie The Princess Bride, and as I start quoting it, most of you will probably be able to quote it, where... um, Wesley, who is disguised at this time, is speaking to the princess and he says, all of life is pain, highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling you something or trying to sell you something. There's hyperbole in that, but there's truth to it as well. We do suffer in life. Life does involve pain. The question that's before us, though, is how will we suffer? How will we suffer? Will we do so in anger and in bitterness? Or will we do so in God's sustaining grace 
Will we do so worshipfully and hopefully? Friends, do not fear your suffering, but instead believe in Jesus and find your hope in him. May God encourage us with these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that meets us where we are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you meet us in our suffering. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I don't know, I know some things that are going on in lives, Lord, but, I, but you, you know us each personally. You know our experience of acute suffering. You know our experience of prolonged suffering. Sustain us by your grace. Give us hope in your ultimate deliverance. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.